0: Now for many of you, uh, we've been thinking a lot about church because we can't do it. Uh, What we've been doing together is uh, kind of approximates church. It kind of closely does many of the things that church does as you get to watch in your lounge rooms with groups of people, let's hope, more and more. But it isn't really church, it's not physically gathering. And I know the extroverts amongst us are kind of going, I can't wait to get back to church. the introverts, I know, I know you because I'm one, you're kind of going, this is awesome. I don't have to deal with crowds, I can just be alone in my lounge room. Um, And the longer it goes on, we're more worried about you and me. But I want to offer you this morning that for many of us, it's just a reminder, but I want to offer for you this morning what an extraordinary thing church is. I want to kind of give us a sense of the magnitude and the greatness and the glory of what it is to be part of church and it is interesting, in, uh, I've noticed this, with all the guidelines that keep coming out about changing circumstances, and don't things keep changing all the time, but with all the changing circumstances, it's interesting churches still get mentioned. They always get mentioned, though, as an afterthought. Do you know, there's the NRL, and then there's pubs and clubs and restaurants, and then... Finally, eventually, you get down to mention something about church, and you can have 10 people in church. And people are kind of going, Awesome, churches only need 10 people to be in church. But it is very sad. We do get mentioned, but not much. But just recognise this it's still the case that 20% of the population go to church regularly, and 61% of Australians still identify as Christians. Now, that is massive. More attend church on a given weekend than live in the whole of South Australia. Now you might be wondering, how come no one lives in South Australia? But it's a a big group of people that still gather in our community week by week and gather around their TV screens at the moment. Uh, More churches exist in our country than there are schools. Um, Church remains a large part of Australian society. But All of that kind of little statistical story doesn't give you the whole picture. Even if church was only a tiny fraction of the larger population, as it was in the early centuries of the uh, history of the church, its significance goes far beyond its numbers. And I want to offer you this morning that what we are, what church is, is at the centre of all things. It is a deeply precious thing. It's at the heart of human existence. Now that's a massive claim to make and uh, fortunately this morning we, we've got time to be able to have a Q&A at the end. So uh, love to kind of push this around and reflect. I, I hope I can convince you of all of this from the Scriptures this morning. Because I want to show you all of this from one particular verse. Uh, it's there in chapter 12 verse 13. So grab your Bibles... Uh, or listen in if you haven't got one handy. If you haven't got one handy in your house, do you go and grab yourself, find a place, go to a hotel and take it from the land. Get, get yourself a Bible in, a, in an appropriate way, of course. But look there in verse 13. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. There it is. Now I know it doesn't mention the word church. And you may be thinking to yourselves, how does that say anything about church being massive? We were all baptised by one spirit, so as to form one body. But stick with me on this because it is massive. Uh, What I want to do is show you uh, how kind of just in its immediate context, you start to get a sense of these things. So that's where we'll start. We'll look at that verse in its immediate paragraph and its context. And then we're going to look at it as it's been understood in recent history. So some of you will be familiar that the phrase baptism in the spirit is a very common phrase in many church cultures. Some of you may have been part of those kind of churches in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, It's a, it's a, a phrase that's been elevated in our current context. So I want to talk to you about how it's been understood most recently, baptism in the spirit. Then what I want to do is put it in its proper context and go all the way back in history right to the very beginning and show you how this phrase helps you understand the great work of God all through history into our present context and so understands that verse in its proper context to show you that what we are about here together is massive. So let me, let me do this for you. I, I want to make a promise that it will change your life when you understand and appreciate it properly. Well think with me about it in its immediate context, what does it mean to say we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body? well it comes in the context of this letter to the corinthians uh the first letter to the corinthians a a letter that's very early written just a few decades after the life death and resurrection of jesus which means it's long before such nonsense of chinese whispers could ever have occurred in fact if you ever wondered you know how does the bible come to be uh, on monday night We'll be having a QA and a around these things and the next week after that, it's a great opportunity this next few weeks to consider the evidences for the Christian faith. Very reliable. What the We are dealing with history that's true, solid, reliable. But come to those Monday night meetings. But the letter here is written to an early church that had a bunch of problems. The particular one was divisions. We looked at this last week. And in this context, the divisions is over gifts. Here you have a group of people who uh, some had some gifts, some had different gifts, and the ones who had the more spectacular gifts were thinking of themselves more highly than the others. And Paul speaks into this in the early part of the chapter, but now in verse 13, and says, you were all baptised by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now notice the language there, you were all baptised by one spirit into one body. Notice the language of all, all of you, It's it's a unified. This verse is meant to give an expression to them being united together. They've all had this one experience and they've all been brought into one body. Whether Jew or Gentile, whatever your race and background, whether slave or free, economic situation, we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so this verse, in its context, is actually about unity. It's a powerful argument for unity. If you know what it means. Now apparently the Corinthians did. And so he doesn't explain the phrase in any more detail than that, he just uses it. But our problem today, for most of us, we have no clue what that phrase means and so it kind of loses something of its strength. But it's clear it's talking about being united. It unites the group that he's writing to. But for most today, actually, it's a very misunderstood phrase, baptism of the Spirit. So let's now think, that's very briefly looking at it in its context. Now just think with me about its contemporary usage in modern church history. It's spoken of in recent times as something that people who already are Christians go through. To bring people who already are Christians into a deeper experience of god's spirit so you can be a christian and it's said in the contemporary context that you need to go what's, go through what's called the baptism in the spirit second baptism in the spirit where through that experience you're taken to a deeper level and opened up to a new power of the holy spirit in your life and so that you're now opened up to the more spectacular gifts you'll be flooded with a new work of the Holy Spirit and particularly evidence that by speaking in tongues. That's an evidence that many suggest means you are now in touch with the power of the Spirit having experienced the baptism in the Spirit. And those that would offer this kind of go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 uh, records for an event very early in church history. Uh, just a few weeks after Jesus' death, resurrection, then ascension, where He poured out the Holy Spirit. He told them in Acts chapter 1 to wait for the promised Holy Spirit, the the gift the Father had promised. Uh, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they waited and Acts chapter 2, it happened. The Spirit came down upon them uh, and they spoke in tongues that they'd never learnt, languages of all the different nations, an extraordinary miracle, uh, and Joel 2, the prophecy of Joel 2, was mentioned. And many today would identify that experience as certainly the baptism in the Spirit, but an experience that all Christians must go through as well at some point in their Christian journey, like those early believers did. And if you go through your own personal Pentecost, having been a believer, experienced the coming of the Spirit in power, Then you will enter into a new realm of experience with the Spirit and speak in tongues. Now, this particular position or understanding of this phrase has given rise to a whole new church movement which is called the Pentecostal movement, Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism taught, still teaches, holds to this view that you can be a Christian and not yet have had the baptism in the Spirit, and if you have your own personal Pentecost, you'll enter into this new stage. Now let me note just a couple of things, uh, which alerts you to a problem. As I've just outlined, this contemporary understanding of the phrase, baptism in the Spirit, is not a teaching that unites Christians, but divides them. I, I do not think this is the intention of those who hold this view. Inevitably and effectively it must divide because what's being said is that you can be a Christian without having had the baptism spirit but upon having the baptism spirit you'll enter into a new experience, a deeper experience evidenced by tongues which means there are some Christians who have had it and some who haven't, you've now got a division in the Christian community. Now the question to ask for us this morning is, is that modern reading right? Is it meant to bring a division amongst Christians between those who have had it and those who have hadn't? Is it a second experience after becoming a Christian to enable them to experience the more spectacular gifts of the Spirit? And does it matter? Well, I want to suggest to you it matters massively and wonderfully. Understanding this properly, as I say, will just open us up into a whole greater more glorious understanding of what god is doing in our lives and in the world so come with me now on the journey there it is in its context uh, you of all it's about unity in its contemporary setting it's an experience that some christians and others don't let me now take you on a journey through the bible and put it in its larger context this phrase baptism in the spirit and in fact bear with me i'm going to take you all the back way back to creation god creates Genesis chapter 1. The God who is spirit, non-material, creates matter. And he creates humans, unique of all his creation. He makes men and women in his image. He even breathes into them his spirit in a very intimate way, unlike any other creature, he breathes intimately into them. Why? Because out of love, he wants to share himself with us. The creator of the universe makes us that we might have a relationship with him. Humans in their pride and foolishness reject that love, Genesis chapter 3. They turn their back on the creator and the horror of that we are still living with. It creates consequences that reverberate down through history, unleashing disease, pandemics, death. The rest of the Bible records this Creator God still pursuing us. Remarkable that He should even do it or want to, but the Bible is full of this fact that God is gracious, holy and gracious and loving and he pursues sinners and in one step in that pursuit he chooses one nation of people and gives himself to them particularly and he gets them to build a structure in their midst a, a thing that's called the tabernacle or the temple it's got walls and fences and an you know, inner sanctuary and sacrifice and washings and so on Uh, But in that particular building, and you get this at the end of the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, God, by His Spirit, takes up residence there. His glory enters the tabernacle. So that, of all the nations on the earth, He might be with this people in their very presence. And it's a thing of wonder. What other nation has had such a thing happen to them? The Bible talks about. And and out of that one nation that he now dwells in the midst of, he chooses some special leaders amongst them to experience his spirit more personally. The prophets, some of the kings, some particularly gifted people, and in particular a man called Moses whose face glowed from being so close and intimate with God. Moses is given a special endowment of God's presence, his spirit. And all of this is for a purpose. To anticipate God's larger desire, his ultimate desire, to dwell with people in their very hearts, with them in the deepest and most personal way. And evidence of this is all the way back in the beginning. uh, Let me just take you to an example. In Numbers chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles flipped back there, Numbers chapter 11, you have this incident where Moses, who's in this intimate relationship with God, such that he glowed with it. um, He he has a delegation of other elders and leaders in the camp who, because of um, Moses' delegations to them, received the Spirit of God in the same way. And they begin to prophesy and speak through the camp of Israel, expressing this extraordinary wonder. And Moses is second in command. A man called Joshua comes to him and he says, well, there in chapter 11, verse 28, um, stop them. But look what Moses says, verse 29, a man who is meek and humble. He says, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses speaks there for God. The great longing is that God would be in an intimate relationship with all his people, not just a few. And Moses voices it for us all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. And from from then on, tragically what you get is this story though of rebellion. Israel dismisses and rejects and in their pride pushes away and God in his persistent love seeks to woo them back and win them until finally in his just anger he withdraws his presence. Ezekiel chapter 10 records his spirit leaving the temple that was in the midst of the people saying that he was with them, he leaves. What a tragedy. But then, after that time, he sends new prophets who begin to speak of the most wonderful future let me give you some of them in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. We'll chase these up later. There will be a day coming when the Spirit of God will be poured out on us from on high. The Spirit will come back. Isaiah 44, verse 2. Don't be afraid. Verse 3. I'll put my Spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. So that, verse 5, they will say, I belong to the Lord. Israel's descendants will have the Spirit such that they belong to the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 28-29, the end of the chapter there, um, God actually says, they will will know that I am God when I pour out my Spirit on them. Do you see how much the Spirit figures in the Old Testament? And an anticipation of a day when the Spirit will be... In his people. All of this is promising, a deeper and better and more wonderful relationship that God would have with his people. Not just that he would be physic- uh, pr- by his spirit in the presence of his people, but that he would be in his people. Such that his intimate relationship would be so close that he would dwell in them and with them. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 and verse 27 says, I'll put put a new heart in you and give you a new spirit. I'll put my spirit in you to cause you to follow my decrees and so on, to move you. This gift of the Spirit of God who will come to His people personally will involve forgiveness and cleansing so that the Holy God can dwell in the heart of a person. This is actually vividly pictured in Ezekiel chapter 37. You can chase it up later. It's the Valley of Dry Bones where God prophesies the word of God and by His Spirit brings life and flesh to His people, brings them back to life again. All of it anticipating this future time, the age of the Spirit, when God will pour out His His Spirit, His personal presence into the lives individually of each of His people. And it won't just be the Spirit on special ones, not just on Moses. And so you get this extraordinary prophecy in Joel 2 that in the last days I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Old men and young men, men and women, servants, all. Now alongside this hope is the expectation that it will only come with the arrival of a special man a man like no other the book of isaiah talks about this as well a man one day he will come and be king isaiah 11 a servant isaiah 42 and a preacher isaiah 61. but a king who will be anointed by the holy spirit a servant who will have the holy spirit filling him a a, a preacher who will be empowered by the spirit of god Now friends, this is the context for the beginning of the New Testament where a man does turn up, a man like no other and at his baptism the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove marking him out as the Isaiah man. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. The one who would bring this new age of the Spirit. Who would empower Him to be a king and a servant and a preacher and save. Now the point here is, there's many things to say. The point here is, the events of Jesus didn't just happen. They didn't just happen out of the blue. Jesus just didn't arrive on the scene without any expectation. His arrival is part of a plan that had its roots back centuries before, was announced and anticipated centuries before, and was actually part of a plan that goes back into eternity past. And God sets the scene for the extraordinary coming of this one by making promises, anticipating and preparing. And so John the Baptist comes, Matthew chapter 3, saying... There's one who is coming after me that's greater than I, his sandals I'm not worthy to tie. I baptised you with water, but he will baptise you in the Holy Spirit. There's that phrase, first used, Matthew chapter 3. Now what is that? Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Well first note this, it's clearly not about people, some people talking in tongues. If that's all it was why did john choose to identify jesus as bringing the ability to speak in tongues that is far grander and more glorious than that what john is announcing rather is that the hopes of the spirit age where god as moses anticipated would one day dwell with all his people Joel chapter 2, all of these great hopes of God pouring out His Spirit so that He would finally win a people back to Himself, give them a new heart, put His Spirit in them, all of these hopes are about to be fulfilled. In the one upon whom the Spirit rests. The servant, the preacher, the king. And Jesus comes, quoting these Old Testament texts that spoke of this man who would come anointed by the Spirit. Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has sent me to proclaim freedom, to bring salvation. He he teaches in John 3 that unless a person is born again by the Holy Spirit, he cannot even see the Kingdom of God. He says to a woman at a well that, that I come to bring living water that will spring up into eternal life. And by this he's talking about the Holy Spirit that he will give one day. John 7 he talks about the need to leave this world that he might send his Spirit And fulfilled the great hopes of the Old Testament. John 14, John 15, John 16. The comfort who will come. And then Acts chapter 1. It's the next occasion where the language of baptism in the Spirit is used. Jesus says to wait for this gift that His Father has promised when He will have left. And in a few days He says to His disciples, you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's meaning, this baptism in the Spirit it's that the hopes and dreams of the old testament will finally be fulfilled the hope of moses will be fulfilled isaiah ezekiel that god finally will now have cleansed the sin of a human heart that he now no longer needs a temple to keep him protected from the sin of a human heart and his righteous reaction he can now dwell in the human with a person that he can be in such intimate relationship with a person that he will be with them so closely. That there will now be that day when he brings us back to the time in the garden where he walked with us in the garden, forgiven, cleansed and restored. And on that first Pentecost, all those hopes were fulfilled. God's Spirit was poured out. God with us. It is the baptism of the Spirit. It is the experience of becoming a Christian. Because the essence of being a Christian is entering into this exact relationship with God, saved, cleansed, purified, forgiven, that He might now dwell with me. That's why, come back with me now to 1 Corinthians 12... That's why when you come to this next use of the phrase, baptism in the Spirit, Paul can say, verse 13, to all the Corinthians, that we, we, me, you, all of us were baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. We were all given the one Spirit to drink. What Paul is saying is that This experience of baptism in the Spirit was not for some spiritual elites, it wasn't a second thing beyond conversion, it was the very experience of coming to Christ, being forgiven, cleansed and purified, that God by His Spirit may now take up residence in the human. Establishing a relationship of deep intimacy and fulfilment of Ezekiel 36 and the great hope of God putting His Spirit in us. The very point of this verse... Is that every believer has had this experience come with me to romans 8 and you'll see this confirmed i mean there's many places to chase it through but just for time let's uh, go to romans chapter 8 romans chapter 8 look at verse 9 you however are not in the realm of the flesh but in the realm of the spirit If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. If you have not experienced the baptism in the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. Because the baptism is the experience of having received the Spirit of Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because it's in the Spirit gives life because of right. Chase up Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, did you receive the Spirit by the by works of the law, by believing what you heard? No, 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 it's by believing the Gospel that you receive the Holy Spirit of God. You are baptised in the Spirit. Now friends, this is massive. The consequences of this are extraordinary. I've got four. Let me now apply all of this, spell it all out for us, what it means. Let me give you the first one. And very quickly, I'm not going to spend time on this, just to say firstly that all of this proper, larger context should make obvious that the modern notion, the Pentecostal notion, um, and I, is, is just wrong. I mean, it's hard to find another way to express it. It's just simply mistaken. It's misunderstood the biblical language and tragically, I think, has spun us in, into very different directions in church life that uh, we are bearing the consequences of, it's simply wrong. But second, Christianity is not just a set of beliefs. Christianity is not just here's a set of truths and if you can tick all the boxes then you're a Christian. That's not what Christianity is. I mean Christians are called believers because there's a set of truths to believe. A set of truths about who Jesus is, what he has come to do, uh, my need for forgiveness, my only hope is found in his work on my behalf, dying in my place that I might be forgiven. These are a set of truths you do need to believe. Christians are called believers for a reason. But Christianity is far deeper than simply agreeing to a set of doctrines. It is an experience because upon believing which itself is an experience belief is an experience but upon believing upon being convinced of who Jesus is and putting my trust in him which is an experience but upon putting my faith in him trusting him as my Lord and Saviour you are forgiven by God and you receive the promised Holy Spirit Acts chapter 2 God comes to you to dwell with you there is the beginning of a new relationship with the living God you have entered into an experience that Moses longed to see happen you have entered into an experience that the prophets talked about with anticipation and excitement and wonder God is with you not just outside of you You are in an intimate relationship. Jesus said, Matthew 28, that He would be with us always and by His Spirit He is with you in a deeply personal and intimate way. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs to believe, though it is that. You become, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is astonishing. The hopes of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the lives of everyone, Who trusts Jesus as Lord and Saviour, who comes to Him. In fact the hopes of creation are fulfilled in every humble believer who puts their faith in Jesus. God's hope out of love to share Himself with humans who in their rebellion rejected Him and walked away, God brings us back to Himself and the great hope of creation is fulfilled in every believer. Have you had this experience? Have you had this experience? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit, baptised in the Holy Spirit? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? If you haven't, then the point of your existence is futile. The very reason God created was that you might know Him in this intimate way. The gift that He has for you is that you might know Him in this infinite way. Now how might you know whether you've had this experience? Well if you've been with us over the last few weeks, um, I I trust you have the answer to that completely at your fingertips. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where might you go to get the answer to that? Now I'm tempted to say if you're watching at home, well as many of you are, Push pause on a live stream. I don't know if you can do that in your context, but perhaps we'll pause and talk to the people with you. Where would you find the answer to that? How can? What's the evidence that I have received the gift of the Holy Spirit? The evidence? It's verse 3. That you can name Jesus as your Lord. That's only possible because the Holy Spirit has produced a miracle in you, Ezekiel 37, to bring dry bones to life. By the declaration of the gospel, the Spirit now comes and dwells with you and brings you to life to see Him as He is, Lord and Savior. That's a miracle beyond understanding. And if you, can, if you know Jesus as Lord, live with Him as Lord, that's evidence that you have experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's wonderfully simple and beautiful. You know, Christianity is claiming something huge. It's claiming a miraculous thing, a global thing. God is doing something beyond and amongst all things that are happening. In the midst of all things that are happening in our world, He is bringing people back into an intimate relationship with Himself by the declaration of the truth of the Gospel, which the Holy Spirit takes and brings life and now enters and dwells in us. If you are a follower of Jesus, baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is what you are if you are in Jesus... You have got a remarkable truth going on in your life. There's the second thing. Christianity is not just an intellectual thing, it's a deeply spiritual experience that you have had if you believe Jesus is Lord. Third, every Christian alike, strong and weak, spectacularly gifted and modestly gifted, thinking you've got no gifts. Share in this experience. The baptism of the Spirit. That is the very point Paul is making in chapter 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. The very point he is making to the Corinthians is to stop setting some Christians up as elite Christians, the power Christians, in the spirit Christians. The very point he's making is that all Christians are charismatic Christians. All Christians are spirit Christians. You can't be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit of God. Think tongues with me. Some had this gift of tongues in the first century. Some have it today. And they took it to mean that it meant they were marked as particularly in the Spirit, unlike others. Now Paul in this chapter acknowledges that many people have the gift of the Spirit. Uh, Verse uh, 10, uh, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues. And he has a series though of questions at the end of the chapter where he asks the question, verse 29, or he repeats again that God has put many different gifts in his body, apostles, prophets, teachers, miraculous gifts, gifts of healing, helping, guidance and so on, different kinds of tongues. But then he has a series of questions, verse 29, which all expect the answer no. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Verse 30, do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? No. But he has just said that all of them have been baptized in the Spirit. Now if it's true that to be baptized in the Spirit is evidenced by speaking in tongues, then you've got a church, the very first church, who were baptized in the Spirit. We know they are, Paul says you all were, and yet not all of them spoke in tongues. The baptism of the Spirit is not meant to be an expression of elitism. Some have it, some don't. All those who come to Jesus, name Him as Lord, whether modest or great or um, spectacular or unspectacular, ordinary, are baptised in the Holy Spirit. All have this astonishing experience, whether you feel it's spectacular or not. You know, the reason this can get traction in the early church is because some have got these gifts that make them feel special. And you can understand how that is. Whereas others find themselves, I don't have the spectacular gift, I, I'm just an administrator in church, I just have the gift of helps. So it doesn't feel anything. And Paul says, don't go on your feelings with this. Do you name Jesus as Lord? Spectacular, ordinary, you have all received the extraordinary thing, the Holy Spirit of God. And extraordinarily, he talks to those who feel inferior in the church. Look at verse 15, 16 and 17. And he says to them, snap out of it. It's interesting how he does this. He says to the foot, "Uh, because I'm not a hand, verse 15, I don't belong to the body. He's speaking to the Christian in church who feels like they don't have the spectacular gift. They're not the person who can be up the front. They're not the person who does amazing things and, and they feel inferior. And Paul says, snap out of it. Just because you're a foot and not a hand doesn't mean you're not part of the body. See who you are because, verse 13, you were all baptised by the one Spirit so as to form one body. And he says to those who feel very honoured by their gifts, he says you need to recognise, verse 21 and verse 22 and 23, that the gifts who are least honourable are the ones we ought to honour the most. It ought never be in church that we have VIP seating. It ought never be in church that we parade some with the spectacular as somehow more honourable. No, the most honourable are the most humble. It's a beautiful thing, verse 25, that brings equality. So that there might be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. That's Christian living by the spirit let me give you fourth and last and it's the biggest one actually see first uh, just the error that i drew attention to second um, uh, having the spirit is an experience that all christians have third humble spectacular you all have this gift of the holy spirit fourth and last christianity is not an individual thing now this is going to be hard for us Westerners because we've been raised in the world of individualism. But we have been, verse 13, baptised into one body. We are now part of a body by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the whole new thinking for us. We have each become part of something bigger than us. It's akin to becoming a member of a family but family is no choice you become part of the family by virtue of no well in one sense you become part of the body of christ like marriage in that marriage is a choice i make to enter this experience this relationship and in becoming married i'm now one with another person and i have to my life has to change because i now have obligations to another person it's not just me anymore same with the christian faith When you choose to become a follower of Jesus and embrace Him as Lord, you are baptised by the Holy Spirit into one body. You are now no longer your own. It's an astonishing thing, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit together. And notice this, remarkably, this body that we have become one in, verse 27, is the local assembly of church. Now you are, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. He is talking there about the local assembly in Corinth. You are, he says, at Corinth, the body of Christ. You are not part of the body of Christ. You are not a limb where Jerusalem church is another limb. You at Corinth are the body of Christ. This is an astonishing insight, it's monumental. Paul associates the local assembly with the body of Christ. You know, God is doing something in the heavenly realms. He he is creating an invisible gathering of His people around the throne of Christ. But that is given visible expression on earth in every local assembly of humble Christians who gather. They are the temple, the body of Christ... From the body of Christ. This local assembly at Erina, which hasn't been able to assemble for some weeks, months now, is the body of Christ here at at Erina. We are not part of it. We are it. We are the visible expression of an eternal, invisible reality and truth. Follow that through. I mean, it freaks out modern Westerners, but it's basic biblical Christianity. If you come to Jesus, you are brought to be part of a body, His body, in a particular place in a local assembly. This means that you are no longer alone, which is a powerful truth. But it means also that you are no longer alone. you are part of a blo- you belong to a body of believers. That has blessings and obligations. You are gifted for the common good, because you're part of a body together. If you go deep in this thinking, you'll appreciate that you now ought no longer live for yourself but for the common good because you're part of that body together. And it's not just a sometimes choice, it's part of who you are, it's part of who I am. Now as I say, it's hard for us to get as Westerners, our whole culture teaches us that I'm my own person, this life is mine to live as I choose, I can come and go as I please and do what suits me and God is seeking to change that our good because to live as western individualists fragments our life fractures our life and brothers and sisters this is one of the great dangers of this time because streaming church like we do not being able to gather physically in an assembly as the body of Christ leaves us open to rampant individualism You know, we are streaming church, but so too are many other millions of churches around the world. You you, you have access to a million different streams, a million different sermons, a million different services. Which one do you choose? Well, as an individualist, you choose the one that you find suits you best from anywhere in the world. We consume material all the time. We choose the material that best helps us. But if you reflect deeply on 1 Corinthians 12, it'll change you. Because you were baptised by one Spirit into one body, the local assembled body. It's no longer about me and my preferences. We will preference our local church. I'm conscious that many people are listening in to this from elsewhere, from elsewhere around the world. And we hope you find it helpful. Um, And for many of you doing that, this is something you're doing in in addition to connecting with your local Christian assembly. And uh, that's wonderful. But I want to urge you to appreciate that your local pastor is the one who prays for you. The one whose heart is for you. The one who will be there. Your local assembly is the group that will walk with you through the ups and downs of life. Be there with them as a priority. You know, astonishingly, the New Testament presents maturity as a corporate thing. Ephesians chapter 4. It's as the whole body builds itself up and grows. Maturity is not me, my Bible and prayer on my own. Maturity as a Christian is me built into the body, the local assembly, Investing and giving and receiving and loving and walking with and caring. Let me though, friends, end finally with an encouragement. Our church community, uh, us here at Erina, has not been able to church. We're doing the things of church but we're not gathered physically, assembled. we're not churching. But we are still the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ with all the responsibilities and obligations that brings. What a blessing. What a monumental thing to say about a group of people like us. That we are united to God himself. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are in intimate relationship with the God of the universe who intended that from creation and has now won us back to himself and given us of himself. What a monumental thing to say. Know who you are. And be who you are. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that that might be the case, that we might appreciate the wonder of who we are, what you have done for us, and that we might learn to live that out. We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen.